Nowhere California is now taking a journey for Kickstarter. Help us through this amazing journey. If you wish to donate, go to kickstarter.com slash projects slash nowhere dash josh slash projects dash nowhere. Welcome to Nowhere California Presents, our conversation with David Rayford. Hey, this is Josh, and I'm sitting here alone, but not alone for too long, because soon we'll be talking to the great composer, David Rayclin, about the upcoming documentary, Mia, A Dancer's Journey. This documentary is about the ballet dancer, Mia Slavinska, and her life on stage and off. I know I'm not the one to be waving the flag of a documentary about a ballerina, but trust me on this, this is a great watch, and I hope you guys will check it out. It's going to be playing on PBS uh, for the time being. You know, PBS likes to show their documentaries, and they always have great documentaries, so check it out. Also, too, during this conversation, we'll be talking about his life as a composer, his career in film, and just his thoughts on music and film in general. So, as always, let's just get to the conversation. Okay, we are now joined by David. How's your day going, man? Hey, it's going fantastic. How's yours, Josh? Uh, pretty good. Had an early shift at work, and now doing something I love to do is uh, talk to creative people. <laughs> hey, uh, we're in agreement. Yeah. Um, I guess the best way to start with this is um, your beginning in film and the world of uh, films and everything. How did you begin your life in uh, filmmaking in general? <laughs> I started making films when I was a kid. Um, nine years old, I was shooting films with family and friends and putting music to them, and I just liked the idea of combining all of these different art forms and uh, you know, telling a story. Then I got uh, more ambitious, and by the time I was about uh, 14 years old, we were staging car crashes with, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the adult fragment bugs. That's awesome. Uh, how, how would you guys uh, set up those uh, crashes? Oh, well, you know, it's movie magic. You learn how to shoot things from a certain angle and cut back and forth, you know, use images from different angles next to each other, plus sound effects, and it creates an illusion. See, movies are like games. They're an immersive illusion. You can see things, and you can hear things, and you feel things that seem real, and you hit all the beats. So it's all into the perception. Yeah, well, everything is perception. That gets very, um, you know, philosophical, but the idea that you can have the persistence of vision where a series of still images presented very quickly seem like they're moving. And that was like, you know, the revolutionary thing with animation, that you could make drawings that were completely fake. There's nothing real about it. People were just trying, but they could move and talk and behave like real characters. And I think every kid has grown up with animated characters as friends, as uh, entertainment, and we don't think about, well, it's actually just a bunch of still pictures plus an actor. You know, it just all combines to make a seamless illusion. Or like a band, you know, when you listen to a band, not just that, oh, well, there's a guitar player and there's a drummer. No, they, they all combine together and they have a personality that become a thing. That's a good way to look at it. Um, 
I've read that your uh, life in uh, the edu- educational system was a pretty interesting one. Uh, how much would you uh, put towards the importance of your education in the careers and the choices that you've made now? Well, education is vitally important, especially if you live in a democracy, and hopefully everyone wants to live in a democracy where you have a say. You've got to have some idea of what's going on, and that means you need an education. You need to learn about science. So when science and technology are the issue, you know what you're talking about. You need to know about history. So when you're dealing with people or other entities, you understand that there's a, a relationship between the people who are uh, here today and their attitudes and the ones that happened in the past. Uh, then there's uh, the importance in your particular job. So I like knowing about the history and the techniques of what I'm doing. Yeah, there's a certain amount of making things up as I go. And Especially if you're working in the arts, it's really good to do that if you want to be an artist. You know, if you're only doing the same thing over and over again, well, she'll put that down, but that's more of a crafts person, you know, where it's, um, okay, uh, I know how to play this power chord on the guitar just with epic intensity, and uh, I'm going to do it that way every time, and that's wonderful. You know, the audience loves that you can always make that epic power chord sound. But, you know, the artist part, you want to experiment with that and try different things. And uh, so it's half education and half craft and, you know, that, that section of it. And half of it is completely spontaneous and creative and can but see your pants. That's a good way to look at that. Um you do have a strong history in the world of uh, music composing and composing uh, sound scores for movies. How did you break into that world outside of the films you made with your family and friends? How did you get to, like, I guess, the mainstream world of composing? Oh, well, it's all about the people who know you. Uh, for example, uh, the way I fell into writing for video games as a friend of a friend was a developer and coder who wanted to uh, develop a first-person shooter that was set in different eras, and each level was like a different place and time, and he needed music that was from all those different eras, so he got referred to me through a friend or a friend. It wasn't like I was seeking to be a video game composer, but I knew how to do what his game needed. So we did it, and it was great fun, and I loved doing it. And um, it's kind of that way on, on films. I mean, up to a point, you can uh, find out about a project and say, oh, that's a great project, that's a great story, it's a great film, or, you know, this um, cast, or the director, or all the people that you want to work with, and then you can go after that and um, send them your demo and, you know, pitch them and try and uh, see if you can land that gig. But at least for me, it's mostly... Uh, personal referrals and uh, I have uh, people approaching me because they want to work with me or uh, we meet at uh, some event. It's uh, also possible you know, to have an agent that can help uh, get you or 
That's a good way to look at it. Um, recently, we did an episode on um, the world of soundtracks and scores in movies. Uh, on your uh, on your own personal opinion, what do you think? What are your thoughts on the importance of uh, movie scores? Every great movie has a great score, and some movies that aren't so great have great scores too. It's something that's intrinsic to the process of movie making. It's always been movie music, even before the era when the sound could be encoded on the same medium as uh, as a picture. People would just play the music live, and that can really be a very cool experience if you. wanted to go to one of those. years, how do you think uh, movie scores have evolved or devolved in the film world? Music that helps tell the story. Music has many. 
kinds of music are developed, whether it's in pop or classical music, they get absorbed into the movie. Um, for example, 2001 Space Odyssey, you know, that's scored entirely with classical music, but it's still revolutionary because it was using modern classical music that was very complex and dissonant, and no one had ever thought to use that in a movie before. But when you're talking about the ultimate fate of mankind and the end of the universe, then that kind of experimental far off music makes perfect sense. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> that's sort of what happens over time, is that uh, to be a good film composer, you have to learn all of these different styles because, uh, for example, if you're doing a space opera, like uh, somebody else talked about Space Command, it turns out that that style of music works perfectly, even though uh, it first came into vogue a while back, it's still useful. You know, it's, it's sort of like um, we still like to cook with steak or with carrots. And even though there might be like sushi, and that's really cool. Sushi doesn't exactly replace having steak. You know what I'm saying? It's like a different flavor. Yeah, definitely. Everything has to have a reason behind it for the movie to be a visual and uh, audio uh, sensation. Exactly. So, you know, special effects, they're always having new kinds of visuals and ways of making visuals. Same thing with music. We're using new technology or Inventing new musical instruments. Um, another example is uh, an amazing film I'm working on called Mia the Dancer's Journey. It's actually going to be uh, showing on PBS uh, uh, tomorrow, uh, Thursday, the 29th at uh, 9 o'clock. And our uh, musical world is actually the whole 20th century because. The story is about someone who had a very long life and an extremely eventful life. So we have to recreate the musical languages of the 20th century from classical ballet to jazz to electronica. And they all fit different parts of that person's life. That's the best way to segue into uh, talking about this great documentary. I had a chance to watch it and... um, it, it takes a lot for a documentary to keep me watching, and this one got me watching very quickly. I'm glad. Well, uh, it's uh, music to our ears. Uh, what led you into this uh, project and working with um, the people around this documentary about uh, Mia Slavinska? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, that's uh, kind of a story itself. Mia Slavinska was a star, a prima ballerina in the golden age. She was born in a small town where they had no dance school, and yet by the time she was 18, she was running the National Theater. Then, political problems happened, and she was banned for life from her own country. 
located here in California, and they uh, create grants for filmmakers that provide financial support, legal help. They also help with post-production. So they actually get the filmmaker to finish their film and have it out in the world. Well, one of the uh, people that contributes to the grant is me. So I came on board after they won to uh, help with this composing. And that's when I met the incredible Kate Johnson. She is the director and uh, creative force that really convinced me that this was the right film. When I saw a rough cut of it um, a while back, I was blown away. is awesome. That is a storied history on just the making of the documentary. <laughs> yes, well, I, I was kind of, uh, you know, giving you the highlights. I mean, we had to do this with live orchestra, so that was a, a whole thing in itself, because when you've got, you know, Kikoski and Chopin and Alex Moore, all these famous composers, famous pieces that are part of this artist's life, everything that I did has to be Yeah, there's no way around that one. <laughs> um, for the documentary, you guys had a Blythe Danner as a, the narrator. Um, how did she get involved oh, in the production? Yes. Blythe Danner. Isn't she amazing? Oh, yes. That was one of the key points. I uh, Just hearing her voice throughout it kept you riveted towards the story, too. She did uh, keep the accent and the, I guess, the passion behind the story, too. Uh, she uh, saw what a great story it was and was happy to help us out. 
That is awesome. Um, what are your hopes for the documentary as it begins airing? I hope this is a little entertaining people and help them enjoy LA and be inspired by this indomitable artist. That's great. And, and like I said before, I had a chance to watch it, and I know I'm not exactly the target demographic for the documentary, but I was riveted. I sat there for the entire time nine pause and just watched it from beginning to end and it's a great story and it's a great life to learn about. Yes, uh, she's a pioneer and someone who just had a charmed life but uh, she couldn't keep the, the drama uh, on stage. Her life was full of drama. That, that definitely shows. Uh, thank you so much, David, for talking with us. Before we go, um, do you have any upcoming projects or uh um, movies coming up that you'd like to let us in on. You were telling us a little bit about um, some of those during the conversation. Sure. Uh, there's an incredible science fiction epic called Space Command, a series of heroic adventures set in a hopeful future that we can all be a part of. And this is a retro future where it's happening tomorrow, but it has the optimism of the utopian days of science fiction from the, the 50s and 60s when uh, shows like uh, Forbidden Planet and Twilight Zone and Star Trek were around and uh, there was a sense that the future could be better than the present. Now, there's nothing wrong with an occasional dystopia where you see that, oh, the future is terrible, but now it's sort of become uh, the dominant style and, and there's no sense that tomorrow could be better than today. So for Space Command, we decided to do something different. And uh, it was so different that we went to the fans to get funding. And we set a record on Kickstarter for scripted and original entertainment. And uh, we attracted all kinds of, of amazing people like Doug Jones, who was Pan and Pan's Labyrinth, and uh, Bruce Boxeitner, who was Tron and Tron, and uh, Bill Mooney, who has been everything from the original Twilight Zone up to Babylon uh, 5 and, and beyond. We have. Ian McKay, who uh, designed Darth Maul and Queen Amidala and uh, the uh, movie uh, Avengers and Star Wars 7 and uh, Jeff Mott, who's from Spider-Man and Dinosaur Galactica. So we have this incredible team of talent in front of and behind the camera that want to tell the story. And you can find out more about it at SpaceCommandMovie.com or Facebook at SpaceCommandMovie. That's awesome. We definitely know the world of Kickstarter. We're currently in the midst of our own uh, Kickstarter project right now. Oh, that's fantastic. What's the, the name of your project? Uh, project Nowhere. Project Nowhere. Love the title. Yeah, uh, we're we're getting close to the 30-day mark, the 30 days left mark. Oh, my gosh. I'm uh, so grateful that you took time out of that. I know that it's a, like a full-time job to run those campaigns, but I ran the like, Space Command Kickstarter and several of those. Yeah, we're, we're learning on the fly on that one, too. <laughs> yeah, well, it's all about sharing and getting people to fall in love with the idea of your project. We're working hard at that. Um, I, before we go, where can we find you on the web where we can uh, check out any of your work? Oh, that's easy. You'll hear my work, of course, in Space Fan, but davidwakelin.com, D-A-V-I-T. R-A-I-K-L-E-N D-A-V-I-D R-A-I-K-L-E-N 
K-I-K-L-E-N.com and go to music and you'll hear my, my music there. Uh, also, um, you can uh, hear some of my stuff on uh, SoundCloud if you go to uh, Cinematic Music One. Uh, also, you can uh, hear me, I uh, do a uh, soundtrack review show on Starship Sofa uh, called the soundtrack show. So, uh, go to starshipsofa.com and you can hear more there. So, uh, there's two places. And of course, friend me on Facebook. I am more than happy to have you as a friend and interact and keep up with the latest. I will be definitely doing that today. Once again, thank you, David, for coming on the show with us. Hey, thank you, Josh. Uh, hope you have uh, a wonderful afternoon. I'm mm-hmm.